Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton, and this is a program for people who want to learn more about our interior lives. 12 years ago, when my husband was going through behaviors and a kind of mental health crisis that I did not know how to define, and I didn't know what to do next, I was baffled by how to navigate the mental health system. I went on Google to actually try to find out what do you do if someone is suicidal? And I found a million listings, none of which actually led me to a local place that could actually help. I talked with Dr. Jim Pullo about this phenomenon, about why the mental health system is so difficult to navigate from when you're trying to do preventative care all the way to when you're in crisis. And we decided to bring you some help today. Hi, Jim. How are you? Good. How are you doing today, Sheila? I'm so good. So I don't think that my experience is at all an anomaly. Oh, no. Your experience is actually really more of the norm. Why do you think that is when we have been so well-versed in how to use the physical health care system that we are so adrift when it comes to knowing how to access mental health? Um, There's a number of complex issues that relate to this. I think where I would start, though, is highlighting that, remember, for many years, there's been a very significant uh, sense of stigma with mental health. And the reason why that's important to just kind of think about for a moment, people that were struggling didn't want to ask for help because how do you ask for help because you're struggling from a mental health problem if you already feel like you know, that somehow makes you defective. You know, stigma prevented a lot of folks from wanting to access help even when they needed help because they didn't want to really kind of expose themselves. And stigma in and of itself created a lot of mystery around mental health because nobody ever talked about it. Even I remember as a young psychiatrist, and this would have been in the 1980s, very often even in medical systems, hospitals, clinics, other medical professionals didn't even know where you would refer, where you would go to. It was kind of like, you you got to go do that on your own, so to speak. So that's the first challenge that we've had that's made it very difficult. I would say that literacy with the health system has been improving over the past couple of years, but we have much better understanding of how to get help for those physical problems. We know, for example, if we you know break an arm, you can go to the ER and they're probably going to set it. We know that if you have a, a pain in your stomach, you got to go see your family doc and find out what's going on. But when it comes to emotional challenges, when it comes to mental health problems, we don't intuitively know where do we go and getting help is very complicated because there's so many different ways about getting help. So if you will just bear with me as I bring our listeners along through all your decades of knowledge, I'd like to begin at the kind of least acute situation and move all the way through to crisis. So let's just begin with how a person finds care for themselves. Yeah, and do do a let let's just have a a forty two year old woman who's kind of having some relationship trouble and is um, parenting a young child and really feels overwhelmed and depressed. Okay, so first of all, that's a great example because that actually is a very common scenario. Mm-hmm. In in fact, the things that people usually have significant stress over are not unusual things. It's right relationship difficulties, family issues, money issues, challenges with a job, challenges raising a kid. I mean, these are common things that we all experience 
And some folks can have some significant stress. Now, for somebody that's never had any experience with the mental health system in terms of reaching out and getting help, one of the first places that you can actually start is just communicating with your primary care doctor. Keep in mind that primary care doctors, first of all, generally know who are the people in the community that are currently seeing and treating folks for emotional challenges. And very often they can not only help guide you to where you might go, sometimes they can even help you with either medication or they can help you with some basics because a lot of people still get their mental health services from their primary care doc. So the first place that I always recommend is talk with your doctor who, by the way, needs to know that that's something that you're struggling with. Because if your doctor's treating you for diabetes and you're also depressed, your diabetes is probably going to get worse. And so it's it's not only good to communicate to your primary care doc that you're struggling, but that's a resource to ask where to go. There are many primary care physicians who aren't truly adequately trained in doing screenings. So for instance, my late husband went to a family physician who lived on our street and said, hey, I need some help with something to sleep. He described antidepressants, which was the absolute worst thing for my husband because he actually had bipolar disorder. And so how do we make that determination as to whether or not a primary care physician is going to be appropriate and skilled enough to be able to determine what kind of medication we need? Super, super question and a very important one. I think it's important to clarify that physicians that are primary care docs are usually trained either in family medicine or internal medicine. And while those training programs prepare them very well to treat a a very broad spectrum of problems to include some mental health, the kind of training that they get still doesn't compare to what a psychiatrist is trained to do, particularly when it comes to medications. There are times when a primary care doc probably is out of their league and and needs to refer to somebody else. And it's pretty hard to know ahead of time which are the ones that maybe have a little more skill than others. What, what I will usually think about is if a primary care doc has followed somebody for many years and they have experience from things that they've had before, hey, four years ago, you had a depressive period. You did very well by being on Zoloft for a couple of months. Sounds like you're experiencing some of the same symptoms. Should we try that again? That might be a very reasonable approach. What you described in your husband is unfortunate, but I've seen it before. People that have some complex medical and mental health issues, prescribe a medication that's really not the right one that can actually make things worse. Antidepressants are contraindicated uh, for folks that have bipolar disorder. Not exclusively, not always, but the bipolar disorder, for example, is not something I would have anybody other than a psychiatrist really prescribe medications to, or even a psychiatric nurse practitioner that's well-trained that can do that as well. So that is one of the complicating factors. The the other thing is that's complicating is that There aren't a lot of individuals where I would recommend medication as the only form of treatment. I really think counseling and working through what the issues are is a critical component of recovery. And primary care docs, their practices are not set up to do that. They don't bring people in and spend, you know, 40 minutes with them talking about what's going on, nor are they even trained in psychotherapy. So the primary care doc, really the only thing they can do is actually 
prescribed medication. So sometimes you will have an individual, a patient who's getting counseling from a counselor and they need maybe a simple medication, just a, a singular uh, uh, medicine for maybe anxiety or a single medicine for maybe depression. And the primary care provider can provide that. The reason why that happens currently in our country is because we're so short on behavioral health providers and they come in all different types. That's the other thing that's very complicated about mental health. Because if you have an emotional problem, do you see a counselor? Do I see a marriage and family therapist? Do I see a psychoanalyst? Do I see a psychologist? Do I see a clinical uh, psychiatric nurse practitioner? Do I see a psychiatrist? I mean, most folks don't understand all these different types of providers and counselors and don't know where to start. Well, that's why we're here today, Dr. <laughs> I love this. You've just led me into the next question then. How do we determine which level of care we need and which specialty should be seeing us? That's a great question. So first of all, I think it's always important to let your primary care doc know if you're struggling with something. And it's okay to ask questions like, do you think I need to see a counselor? Do you think I need to see a psychiatrist? What What's the difference between one and the other? Which one can help me? Now, in general, if you're going to need medication as part of the treatment plan, then there's really only two providers that can do that for you. Psychiatrists can provide uh, medication and psychiatric nurse practitioners. There are also five states that now allow psychologists who've gone through intensive training to prescribe medication. But counselors, psychotherapists, psychologists, none of those folks are able to provide medication. Most of those individuals, though, if they're following somebody for you know some counseling that they're providing for a problem, and they feel, you know, you might benefit from a medication, then usually they have resources that they can refer to. The biggest challenge is just getting in and breaking into the system to see somebody that can start the process. Typically, when somebody is having an emotional difficulty, an emotional problem where they are seeking help, my recommendation is the first thing that you really need is a comprehensive evaluation. Somebody that's going to sit down with you probably for about an hour ask you a lot of questions about what's going on, ask you a lot of questions about your background, and they're going to begin to construct a profile that leads down the direction of what your diagnosis might be. They don't have to get it exact. Hey, I think you have a depression. Hey, I think you have a primary anxiety disorder. Hey, I think you have a, a mood instability problem to give you a sense of what the diagnosis is. And that then begins to help shape, well, what should the treatment be? I love yeah. that. And that guide is so helpful, Dr. Polo. It is also so inherent for most people of how either their insurance will pay for it or how they will pay for it out of pocket. So can we go through that process as well? Yes. And something I'll mention right away is that for people that have insurance, you can also go directly to your health plan, You know, call them on the customer service line and say, hey, I'm looking for mental health services. Where should I go? Where can I start? Who's in network? There's a lot of complicating factors with insurance. In our country, sadly, we have a shortage of mental health providers. And in addition to having a shortage, we have many, particularly psychiatrists and child and adolescent psychiatrists that don't need to take insurance. They live in populated areas where demand is high enough that there are people that are willing to simply pay out of pocket. And if you're a physician in the country today and you don't have to deal with insurance and you don't have to deal with paperwork, it, it just makes your life 
much easier. And so consequently, we're very short on mental health providers, particularly at the more complex level. So finding somebody is really hard because you might call five offices of which two say they don't take any insurance. One doesn't even answer. One says they're not taking any new patients because they're booked. And another one says, yes, we'll be happy to see you. Our first appointment is in eight months. And none of those options help that individual at that time. Yeah. I, I've wanted to alert people to their EAPs because my um, learning with working with businesses is that fewer than 4% of employees actually even know what EAP means. It's your employee assistance program, and it's there to actually help you navigate those times when you can't find the doctor, correct? That is correct. All all employers have some form of an employee assistance program. And the beauty of these programs is generally these are part of your benefits of working for the company. So there's no cost involved here. And very often employment assistance programs include counseling and services when you run into a challenge. And very often you can start through your EAP program to first of all, figure out, do I have a problem going on that's a behavioral health problem? And if so, can I get some help navigating early dealing with it? And very often EAP programs will then lead into accessing benefits through the health plan. It's supposed to be seamless. Some companies do it a little bit better than others. What I would tell you from my experience is that most companies today are recognizing the importance of behavioral health and addressing mental health problems. And consequently, they're investing in EAP programs. My experience has been a lot of people don't even know they exist. They don't know they have this benefit at their own company. It's also really important just to remind people that it is separate from your employer. So they're not going to be able to see that you were talking about depression or that you have anxiety, that it is really protected under all of the medical rules of privacy, correct? That is correct because employment assistance programs can be for other things too. For example, you might be going through a divorce and you access your employee assistance program because you're not sure how to do that. You might be having some financial difficulties and, and you need assistance in terms of how to appropriately budget. So employee assistance programs are not exclusively, quote, mental health, but obviously very often when you need assistance, it's because you're struggling with something that is also causing some stress and emotional difficulty. Very often folks, for example, that are struggling with symptoms of depression, which relate to, you know, routine things like my job is hard, my kids are home and they're driving me crazy because they're, you know, on Zoom all day and I'm overwhelmed and employee assistance programs can help, first of all, do that initial evaluation to figure out what's really going on. Do you have a problem that's just uh, one that we can address easily or do you have something that's more complex that needs a, a more extensive treatment plan? Dr. Polo, last week we were talking about all of the options for people with telehealth and some of the digital devices. Where in this role of, you know, okay, we have a woman who just is having this extra pressure at home, and then we have somebody who's really starting to feel like their capacities are being limited by their mental health situation. At what point in that are you sort of over the risk to be able to use telehealth? So that is a really important thing to talk about. Keep in mind that in our country, almost 80% of counties across the nation do not have adequate mental health resources for the people that live there. In the really rural communities, so think of, uh, think of states like South Dakota, Montana, there are counties that have 
not a single behavioral health provider and the closest psychiatrist might be a couple hundred miles away. So one of the advantages of virtual care, one of the advantages of telehealth is that you can actually connect people that need services that don't have them in their local region to a provider that maybe is in a more populated area. Uh, if you go to some large cities, for example, if you go to New York City, if you go to Washington, D.C., there is no shortage of psychiatrists in those cities. Obviously, those are highly populated cities. But those kinds of resources in large cities like that can sometimes be advantageous to folks, let's say, that live in, in a different part of the state where no one is available. There's two ways to think about virtual care in terms of getting it. If I have a struggle where I think I just need some counseling and I want to try to get to a virtual provider, maybe a provider that's you know a couple hundred miles away but still able to help me, the first place I'd recommend people start with is their own insurance company. And the reason why I say that is because insurance companies in today's healthcare market are all partnering with many different telehealth companies precisely to be able to give services to, to people because we lack them all over the place. Now, for somebody that does not have insurance or for somebody that has Medicaid or Medicare, then you have to talk with your primary care doc if you have one. If you're on Medicare or Medicaid, they do have some telehealth services that may be available to them, but there may be some restrictions. Certainly, if you have no insurance, I'm going to assume that you may have some financial issues. I mean, you can always go online and, and do a search for virtual providers, and you're probably going to find services online. Uh, but obviously, if there's a cost associated with that, that becomes a huge barrier for many people. And that's one of the challenges we have in our country right now. Uh, it's so hard for me that it, when people call who have lost their jobs, especially, and they're having financial stress, because it's a major cause of mental health concerns is yes. economic uncertainty, that I don't have more free resources. But your county is always a good place to look as well. That is correct. Every county has the community services that are provided usually through state funding. So, you know, one of the biggest challenges is that folks don't realize they might have resources in their very own community, and it requires doing a little bit of investigative work and calling and finding out what's available, calling the local Department of Health, calling the local uh, healthcare authority, different states call it different things. But basically, every state has uh, one of those two entities, and you can call and find out, hey, where can I get? services for mental health problems. There are federally qualified mental health community centers that are funded by the state precisely to be able to provide services to folks that do not have insurance. Unfortunately, the folks that don't have insurance are the folks usually that have the least ability to advocate for themselves and difficulty calling. They may not even have a phone. They may not even have a car and they may not even know that these resources exist. So it's important to for us to make sure that they're aware. And and certainly uh, there are lots of hotlines that you can always call that will give you information on where to go, how to get help. Let's move to a person who is either in crisis themselves or has a family member they're deeply concerned about. So one of the challenges is that when people are in an acute crisis, very often it's difficult for them to really know what to do at that moment. They're 
potentially thinking of harming themselves. They're potentially uh, so emotionally uh, overwhelmed that they, they can't make simple decisions. So first thing I, I would recommend is that keep in mind that we've instituted nationwide a new 988 call number. It's very similar to 911. You know, if you're having a medical emergency in the country today, you call 911, you're going to get an operator that will answer right away. And regardless of what you're asking for, they're going to help begin to guide you to what you need. Hey, my mom just fell down and can't get up. Hey, I'm locked in a freezer and it's getting cold. Whatever. 988 is a new number that is exclusively for people that are experiencing a mental health challenge, a mental health crisis. And when you call 988, you're going to get somebody with behavioral health experience that is going to be schooled in mental health first aid to begin to help guide you to what you might need. Now, for folks that are in an acute crisis, sometimes the appropriate place for them is to be directed to go to the nearest emergency room. Hey, you're probably going to need some services immediately. You might need to be hospitalized or you might need a medication. And so that can be one of the recommendations that might come from a 988 operator. If you call any behavioral health counselor, if you call any psychiatrist and you get their answering machine, their answering machine is almost likely going to say, if you're experiencing an emergency, go to your local emergency room or call 911. And the reason is because the significant crises that occur in behavioral health are usually when somebody is so distraught that they're thinking of harming themselves or they're thinking of harming somebody else. And so getting that individual to be seen right away is really critical. How rare is it to have a psychiatric emergency room like we do in Portland, Oregon? So that's a great question because first of all, if you go to any emergency room across the nation and you just do a survey and ask them, how often do you see people that come in with mental health problems? What do you think the answer is going to be? They're going to tell you every single hour coming yeah. in complaining of mental health problems. Sure. It's, it's all over the place. And in fact, in our country, we have a what's called a, a ER boarding problem. Individuals that have gone to an emergency room for a mental health problem they're not safe to leave, but there's no place to send them because there are no beds available or no one's uh, accepting patients at that moment. And consequently, they end up just in the ER, stuck in the ER until they're either safer or until resources are available. So it's very common. And so a lot of cities are now constructing in partnership with uh, hospitals and healthcare systems, sometimes with health plans, emergency rooms that are specific for people with emotional difficulties. And they have the ability to do observation. They have the ability to hold folks for a couple of hours, sometimes for more than a day to help through whatever the acute struggle is to set up some resources so that they can you know, avoid being admitted to that acute psychiatric type hospital. Um, I think it's really interesting that what, what you just said about the boarding issue, because I just spoke to a bunch of nurses and case managers who are saying there are some patients with mental health difficulties that have been in the hospital being boarded for up to four months. They have lived, they have actually become residents of the hospital because foster care homes won't take them. The state hospitals are full. The system is so widely broken and I'm just wondering, are you aware of any federal task force or big think in terms of what are we going to do to fix this system that makes room for those people with severe mental health 
So, so first of all, this is another one of the complexities about behavioral health. We have in our country a segment of the population, a segment of the people that are struggling with mental health that have what's called SMI or SMPI, serious mental illness, serious mental and persistent illness. Okay. These are individuals, when you look at the adult spectrum, are individuals that have schizophrenia, schizoaffective, severe bipolar, some of the very severe mental health disorders that usually render them unable to work, unable to care for themselves, and, and oftentimes needing some kind of a protected environment. Now, in our country, we used to have a lot of large state hospitals, and that's where these people generally were hospitalized. It's where they lived. It's where they were protected. We went through a period of time in the 70s and 80s where we deinstitutionalized a, a, a lot of these folks in favor of giving them more freedom, in favor of not violating their rights. And unfortunately, a lot of these people ended up living on the streets. And so we don't have a lot of resources for those people with severe mental illnesses available. Most state hospitals, uh, the few beds that they have are, are full. When it comes to children, the problem is even worse. Most states do have the equivalent of a state hospital for children, but the number of beds available are very, very restricted. And so kids that have, let's say, severe autism or kids that have severe mental illness that starts at an early age where they need to be in a protected environment, it can be challenging to find places for these kids. So if they show up in the ER and they're a danger to themselves or to their family members, uh, there's no option other than to hold them until they can find a, a right resource for them. And I have heard of cases of kids and adults too, that have literally been in an emergency room for days, if not weeks, waiting for a resource to open up. I think throughout all of this, you touched on it, Dr. Polo, was the frustration that family members feel of honestly feeling as if your leg is bleeding, the gaping wound is getting worse, and the availability and the bureaucracy of the mental health system seems overwhelming. What do you say to those people? I remind everybody that we still have to, first of all, care enough about individuals to do something to help them. You know, I, I look at it from my perspective as being on the provider side. So I remember when I worked at a children's hospital, we had patients that would come to our emergency room and in fact, they would be stuck. Uh, I was the chief medical officer of a, a children's hospital and it was one of the things that always bothered me when we had little kids that came to the hospital and we couldn't find a bed for them. So on our side of the house, i.e. on the provider side, we would do everything possible to help that family, to help that child. Didn't matter whether we were getting paid for it or not. That, that was not an issue. The issue was we needed to keep that kid safe. We needed to make sure that our case managers were calling every day to see if we could find a, a bed for that child. So you don't give up. That's the number one thing. You don't give up. You keep looking for resources. Eventually, you'll usually find those resources. What happens though is many people give up. They just stop looking. And the problem doesn't go away. It just festers. I loved the advice that you gave where you were saying the best time to put this plan, just like our preparedness plan that we have for earthquakes, the best time to do it is when you're in a good state of mind, you have your insurance, you have your plan, just like you do your go kit, right? Absolutely. Is there anything else that we should be doing besides knowing our insurance, knowing our provider, establishing a relationship? Well, keep in mind that just like you can take care of your body 
so that you prevent problems. You can take care of your mental health so that you're stronger and more resilient. In addition to kind of thinking through clearly when you're not in stress, hey, if I was having a problem right now where I was overwhelmed, who would I call? Where would I go? What would I do? Make those decisions while you're clear thinking. But at the same time, what are the things that we can work on to help build our own emotional strength? The basics are always there. Getting plenty of sleep, eating well, keeping your body fit, uh, being flexible. I generally tell folks, build your, your resilience by facing problems, by dealing with what comes your way, by reaching out, connecting to other folks and asking them to help you. And through that experience, you're going to be more likely to handle setbacks in the future a little bit better. I could talk about this topic all day long, but there appears to be some siren outside that I need to attend to, Dr. Polo. I will get together with you again next week. And thank you for providing these truly amazing preventative and everyday skills that we can start integrating into our lives. You're so important to me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.